0: somewhere, Jung says that the only evil is unconsciousness. And this, I think, touches to your work, Don, that this growth in consciousness, which psychoanalysis aims towards, mm-hmm. has to be understood as a moral drive towards the good.
1: Welcome to Psychology and the Cross. This time, I have invited two guests whom I, in previous episodes, had conversations with separately. The Toronto-based psychoanalyst, Donald Carveth, and philosophy and theology professor, Sean McGrath. The theme of our discussion is the role of conscience, ethics and morality in psychological development, individuation and Christian faith. As a base for our discussion, we have read the 1958 Jung paper A Psychological View of Conscience, a paper that you can access yourself through our Substack page on centerofthecross.substack.com. First of all, I just want to say that I am very happy to have both of you in the same room. You have both very different voices, but voices I've learned from and then I had the opportunity to have conversation with, and I am really excited to see how our conversation develops today. When I spoke to you, Don, we, we, we did delve into the matter of, of conscience and the thought came to me that it would be an interesting um, exercise together to, to use conscious as a starting point to, to delve into the, to the psychology of that, but also through the help of Sean and get a little bit of a theological backdrop to conscience. It could be appropriate to start this discussion on conscious with Martin Luther. Actually, the first lecture that I invited Sean to do in Berlin was on Luther and Deconstructionism, some years back, Uh, a great lecture that's still available on on YouTube. And Luther has been sort of accompanying me in in various ways through and after my psychoanalytic training. And he has a a lot to say also on the theme of, of conscience. But I thought as a starting point for this conversation today could be the reformation movement at the Diet of Worms back in 1521 when Martin Luther standing before the emperor and Pope's representative uh, said the following. Since then your serene majesty and your lordships seek a simple answer, I will give it in this manner, neither formed nor toothed, unless I am convinced by the testimony of the scriptures or by clear reason. I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted and my conscience is captive to the word of God, I cannot and will not retract anything, since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. And supposedly the secretary to the Archbishop of Trier disregarded Luther's appeal by shouting, lay aside your conscience, Martin, you must lay it aside because it is in error. And I, I thought it is fitting because this also uh, puts a context for, for the complexities of discussing a conscience and separating those inner voices. Luther's appealing here to conscience and the assertion of freedom of the human conscience against the hegemonic power of the church and state. And this is seen as the start of the, of the reformation process. But it also shows that complexity, No, when can one be sure that a conscience actually speaks the voice of good or the voice of truth or the voice of God? And or when is it uh, the devil in disguise or perhaps one of our parents or other, you know, authority that we grew up with that is speaking to us in Schutz? So I thought that uh, I, I would from here just invite you, Sean, to see where you would go with this. That if you could, yeah, maybe share your reflections on, on this moment, or was you shared a bit also to give us a little bit of a, theor- a theological framing of, of conscience,: Well, Luther, in this moment,
0: is in fact, being a good scholastic. He's, there's ne- there's ne- there, the, there is something in this moment that's, that veers away from the tradition, but it's not what you think. So Luther insisting that he stands by his conscience is in fact completely compatible with the tradition, the medieval tradition that he's trained in, and his critics accusing him of having having an error in conscience is also compatible because conscience in this medieval tradition, very much like in the Jung article, conscience is not identical to knowledge, it's compatible with ignorance. Conscience means coscientia, so it's a, there's a, it's a double knowledge or it's a knowledge that accompanies knowledge and so there's this there's there's a kind of ambiguity of conscience and it seems to me that that's what's coming to the fore in this in this exchange what what luther does in this moment that's actually against the, that that you know violates the catholic tradition is he says i will stand by scripture and reason and conscience and he he excludes tradition so that's that's the the uh, reformation moment the reformation moment is not that luther insists on standing by his conscience over against the church that would want him, you know, that it encourages him to violate his conscience. That's kind of the pop version. The real thing going on here is that he's, he's cut tradition out of the, out of the, out of theology. But if we go back to the business of conscience, you know, it's a medieval, it's a medieval principle that every conscience binds even an errant one. So Thomas Aquinas argues that one should never go against one's conscience. And if you think about it, it's pretty clear what he means there. What would it mean to go against your conscience? It means to do something which you believe to be wrong. That's always, always a sin. Now, that said, conscience — and this is what I like about the Jung piece, actually — you know, the the conscience is not innate knowledge of the good. It's not enough just to kind of spontaneously follow your conscience, because your conscience can be in error. And this is what Luther's critics are saying, Your, your conscience is in error. So the question is, whether Luther's conscience is informed enough, whether his conscience has become, if you want to speak psychoanalytically, has become conscious enough to be trusted because conscience cannot simply, as I said, it's not simply innate knowledge of the good. It's a kind of innate capacity for the good, or it's an innate tendency towards the good, which requires, inf- which requires knowledge, which or, that's how the scholastics would put it, or re- it requires consciousness. And so there's this idea that one has to be responsible to one's conscience, one has to inform it, one has to read, one has to think, one has to listen to authorities, and one has to discern whether there's any doubt, whether one is in any doubt about, you know, what re- one regards by a conscience as the good. And if there's, a, if there's a, a bit of doubt there, then one has to actually pause, suspend the judgment, and, and inform oneself. And what Luther is saying here, which is perfectly in accordance with the Catholic tradition is that I, there is no doubt in my conscience and therefore I need to do what I'm doing. That's, that is, that is a fully orthodox
1: position. And what about the conscience this consciousness of sin? Can you say something about that as well? Well, that's, what's so interesting here.
0: So there's a, this is a complicated story that goes all the way back to Plato. And it's the connection between knowledge and virtue, right? So out of Plato, you get this idea that knowledge is virtue, that one cannot know the good and not do the good. And one cannot do the good and not know the good. And sometimes that's been spun as a kind of determinism, but it's actually an extremely deep point. And I think it's the very root of this idea of the, the duality between conscience and consciousness, that they're not the same thing. And, and, and that, that is that, you know, a conscience that has become fully conscious, you could say, is a knowledge of the good. And at that point, you know, we have, everything is in place. It's a complete and entire participation in what ought to be done. But anything sh- short of that is going to have trouble. So this idea here com- that comes from Socrates, you know, who says that no man can do wrong knowingly, that is, you can't look into the face of the good and choose evil, that is, we all desire the good on some basic level, even if it's just the good for ourselves, you know, that there's, there's a, e- even, even a suicide, even the masochist in a certain way is preferring death and pain to life and pleasure and saying, this is my good. And, and so there's a, there's a kind of inborn, and this is the tradition out of which Luther is speaking. There's this inborn drive towards the good, which is incompatible with, with, you know, voluntarily doing the bad. But that said, the the good has to be uh, brought to consciousness. That is, there has to be a growth from this kind of, it's very interesting, but conscience in the tradition is kind of like an unconscious inclination towards the good left on its own. It's not enough. It's got to be raised up to consciousness. And with this elevation of conscience to consciousness, we have then all that's required for the moral act. Now, of course, it has to be done freely. So it's not, this is not a me- me- mechanistic thing. So one's will is involved. And so this leads to certain kinds of paradoxes. So how do we, how do we accuse somebody of being, you know, guilty of sin? That is, of knowingly doing what's wrong. And Aquinas, who's a very subtle thinker, says, well, what's going on there is disavowal. He doesn't use the word. But basically, when you see evil, Culpable evil. What you see is culpable ignorance. Somebody is refusing to elevate this unconscious inclination towards the good, which we call conscience, to the level of consciousness, so that it could be a fully moral act. Instead, they are kind of at a certain, and this is really very puzzling moment. They're saying, "No, I will not to know." You know, it's what Zizek calls ideology. No, I will not to know. I, I do not know. I will not know what I need to know in order to, to trust my instinct, you could say, my spontaneous inclination. And at that point, we have something, you know, problematic. But, but nevertheless, the principle remains that every conscience binds even an erring one. And that's a, that, that, that rich paradox at the center of the medieval tradition is coming right to the fore in this dialogue that you quoted.
1: Don, do you have anything for now? Any spontaneous reactions to to what's been shared? Well, the idea of the need
2: for conscience or for the voice of conscience to become conscious, my thoughts immediately go to the Jung paper and the superb example he gives of the man who has the dream of both arms covered in black dirt. So this is a man who, before his discussion of his dream with Jung, has been having an unconscious, consci- an unconscious reaction of conscience. He has not been conscious of what his conscience is aware of and is saying through the analysis of the dream, he becomes conscious of it. So our capacity to blind ourselves to conscience is, is profound. It's all over the place. I, I, I think much of my practice involves the kind of thing that, that Jung is describing in, in that dream.
0: And what he, I think what Jung is so, what he's, what he's so superbly pointing out there is that this voice of God, conscience, is not enough. Sometimes it's just the voice of the community. Sometimes it's some buried, you know, instinct for what's right. And sometimes it's actually something that actually should be resisted. In other words, the spontaneity of the voice, the, the fact that the voice is direct and instinctive is not enough. It has to be brought to this other level. And I think this is very strong in, in Jung. Somewhere Jung says that the only evil is unconsciousness. Mm-hmm. And, and this, I think, touches to your work, Don. That this growth in consciousness, with psycho, which psychoanalysis aims towards, mm-hmm. has to be understood as a moral drive towards the good, or as, as an ethical drive. I guess this is where Jung would prefer it, because he mm-hmm. makes this distinction between morality and ethics. And I think your work has brought this out. What I understand Don to be doing is he's, you know, he's, he's giving the lie to a kind of classical Freudianism, which understood the psychoanalytical tradition to be kind of, you know, amoral in a certain way or indifferent. To moral, and then I guess metaphysical and religious questions, because they all tend to go together as Freud saw pretty clearly, that once you start talking about morality, you know, religion and is around the corner, he didn't want to go around that corner. But I, it seems to me what Don has done in his book is he's argued, though you've already turned that corner insofar as conscious consciousness, a growth in consciousness, is always a good thing. And a resistance to consciousness is always a bad thing. And that seems to me to be something that's actually a medieval principle.
2: So I I have a problem with a, a part of what you said earlier, Sean, and it's, it's a problem I think in a lot of the literature, I think also in Jung, part of the problem is the failure to distinguish conscience from superego. The word conscience is being used too indiscriminately here. I mean, I think we really need a radical distinction between conscience and superego. I mean, both conscience and superego appear as voices uh, in our heads. Both conscience and superego could show up in dreams, as in the dream offered by Jung. But but they're very different principles, and it very much confuses our thinking, to use the word conscience, to de- to describe both. Because uh, I, I think conscience is of God. And I think it's, a lot of the time, not nearly as hard as people think to discriminate between these voices in our heads. Well, well I suppose my favorite passage uh, from the New Testament is 1 John 4, 7 to 12. Beloved, let us love one another because love is of God. Uh, everyone who loves is begotten by God and knows God. Whoever is without love does not know God, for God is love. Okay, the conscience is the voice of God because the conscience is a principle of love. The superego is a principle of hate. You know, so when these voices speak hatefully, cruelly, sadistically, mockingly, attackingly, that we're, de- we're dealing with superego there. When the voice um, is loving, however sad and aggrieved it may be, because, you know, the child is off the path and the father who's calling him back to the path has tears in his eyes. That father with tears in his eyes speaks in a very different way than the superego does. So, you know, I I think a lot of, well, let me just leave it at that. I I, I think this distinction is crucial to our discussion.
0: And it strikes me that while both remain unconscious, the distinction between them cannot be made. That is, you know, superego and conscience become confused precisely because they are left sort of in the basement. Exactly this connection between conscience and knowledge. They're not the same thing. And even in the quote, the passage from 1 John, he just cited, you know, there is this play on loving God and knowing God, and he who loves knows God. And he who does not love does not know God, that, that we're, we, there's always this reference, that there's always this connection to knowledge that's, that's coming forward here, and the connection is, 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 is there because we need to recognize that that it's not enough for example to have a spontaneous drive towards something it also has to be in a certain way illuminated by knowledge so like john could have said you know he who loves is of god but he adds that he you know th- that loving god and knowing god are actually one and if you do not know god then you're not loving in the right way i mean it seems to me that's the implication Uh, This strikes me as important in our day and age because we are so, we are so, we are still neo-romantics. We are so fascinated by spontaneous and instinctive behavior. We're inclined to trust it. You know, I trust my heart. I have to do it. I cannot do otherwise, you know, kind of doing a Luther in our, in our post, post postmodern moment, but the spontaneity and the directness of an action is not enough to, to, to validate it ethically. There needs to be this second moment. And this, I think, is what's coming out of the medieval tradition and and that Jung is kind of brilliantly touching on. The second moment where conscience becomes conscious, and I think, Don, you correct me, at that point, the distinction between that voice, which is just an introjected parental uh, voice of uh, repression, the superego, and the voice of God, they can be distinguished. They can only be distinguished on the level of consciousness, not on some kind of spontaneous unconscious level.
2: Right. I I agree. I mean, the whole psychoanalytic project is trying to make that which was unconscious conscious and to promote the development of self-knowledge. So I, I completely agree with that point. But in terms of, you know, the critique of the spontaneity, I hesitate a little bit there because one of the things I learned from the Jung essay, I finally finally found a way that I could agree with his idea of the archetype because to me the archetype has always seemed like a very fuzzy wooly concept of sort of innate ideas or mythical patterns that come from where I don't know what are they grounded in but suddenly I realized that part of what he's trying to do with the concept of of the archetype is to say that he's referring to nature. He's referring to elements of our being that are natural, that are unlearned, that do not come from culture. And of course he's saying that conscience is such a natural thing. And he he's referring to archetypal patterns, unlearned, given, built in, and i think that conscience is grounded in our mammalian and primate inheritance i think part of the problem in our discussion again is and here i here i go freudian we we need the distinctions we need the id as well as the ego the superego we also need the conscience and the ego ideal we need five structures but for freud the id is grounded in our animal inheritance jung seems to be sort of saying that he he makes me think that conscience is part of the id, because conscience is grounded biologically. So the id would contain natural urges like aggression, urges which could lead to evil and destructiveness, our dark side. But the id, I would argue, also contains our light side. The id contains conscience as well as as aggression. I think Jung is pointing to this with his idea of the archetypal basis of conscience. So, yeah, so so just a word in favor of the spontaneity of the built-in, the natural. There is something there that is very important that I think uh, that Jung is pointing to, and, and and I'm pointing to, by trying to ground conscience in attachment, boldly, you know, points to our primate inheritance. This is where attachment, our tendency towards attachment is grounded. it's instinctual in that sense. It's innate, unlearned. So this is a big important theme and it's enabled me to connect with Jung in a way that I never was able to connect to before. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I, I, I hear the point, and it strikes me that, you know, the id, right, das es, that's the German, yeah. it's really just a word for the, it's, it's a term to name the impersonal dimension of the psyche, yeah. at least formally speaking. And I, it seems to me what, we're, what you're touching on here is how, di- how differentiated Jung's sense of the impersonal stratum truly is. Yeah. So the impersonal is not just violence and excess. An animal, but it's also you know you could say angelic in a certain yes. way, or it's you know it's got our, our demons and our angels. They're also transpersonal or subpersonal or something like that.
2: Yes, yes, but 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 here by by grounding the angelic in the id, I think we get around a problem that I don't think Jung got around. He's stuck on. He's such a profoundly dualistic thinker. And he has such a profound insight into the dualities of our, our nature. And he's stuck on this dualistic concept of God, which I find utterly unacceptable. God is not both the dark and the light. God is the light. God is love. And when he points to the Lord's prayer, uh, lead us not into tempta- to temptation, this is an image of God as leading us into temptation, putting us into danger. And uh, to me, all I can say is that is a that is either a flaw in the Lord's Prayer that needs to be revised, or I want you to tell me there's a translation problem somewhere. If we go back to the Greek or we go back, uh, we'll find that that sentence, lead us not into temptation. Uh, but of course, you know, the Bible is full of images of a uh, of a destructive God, a punishing God, but to me, this is not God. God is the summum bonum. God is love. This other stuff comes from other, from elsewhere. Okay. What's your reaction to all of that, Sean?
0: Okay. So, so that yeah, Don, you said a couple of things there that are really important, uh, at least to my mind, uh, Jung's dualism on the one hand. And then the question of spontaneity on the other, and the question of spontaneity, I find an easier one to deal with than the dualism. Yeah. With regard to the spontaneity, you know, there's, it seems to me, there's two problems here. One is that we can repress our spontaneous self to such a degree that we become, you know, what Schelling calls a fischten mensch, a person of just empty understanding, a rationalist automaton, you know, somebody with no life in them. And uh, clearly, psychoanalysis is uh, dealing with that kind of illness all the time. We might call that a predominant form of neurosis, someone who's sort of cut off from their instinctive life, whether it's, a, it's, it's, a, whether it's their animal life or their moral life, or even just their, their personal being in the world. Mm-hmm. And, and so that's a, that's, a, that's a certain kind of evil. Yeah. But there's another kind of evil, of course, which is that one has so surrendered oneself to nature, you could say, uh, that reflection and moral discernment and responsibility have become negated. Yeah. And, and this is, enough, this is, this is a, you know, this is, this is a, you could like the, the, De, the, De, the Deleuzean problematic, because Deleuze has such difficulties with reflection that at the end of the day, he just wants people to kind of spontaneously uh, produce themselves uh, without any kind of moral discernment. And ultimately, that leads to a denial of, of the distinction between good and evil, the distinction which you just quite clearly uh, articulated in response to Jung. So I, for, for me, my guide here is, is Schelling, who in a very famous passage says, there's two kinds of madness. One madness is the madness that represses the spontaneous self by the understanding. And in that kind of person, there is no life. Nothing comes from them. They're kind of a walking dead. And there's another kind of madness, of course, in which this spontaneous natural self has completely eclipsed consciousness and knowledge and culture. And, you know, we're some kind of psychosis. So there's a kind of delicate balancing act required here. And I think that's what we're trying to get at. Yeah. And that's where, that's where Jung is getting at quite articulately in this essay and the best parts of his essay. But let's talk about the bad parts of his essay. (laughs) For me, Jung is a complete theoretical mess, you know, this is why he's so interesting because he, he's just, he, he produces one insight after the other insight and they're, he, he's, they're full of genius and possibility, but the thing never gets knitted together in any kind of satisfying way. And he'll say one thing that, you know, one could develop and, but then follow it up with something else, which completely confuses matters.
2: Exactly. It's exasperating to read for that very reason.
0: Entirely confused. And and with regard to this question of that God, you know, the the dark side of God, and God has this shadow side, and God is beyond good and evil, and He's neither good nor evil, and so we end up with some kind of, I don't know what to say, you know, some kind of monistic idea out of out of Asia, rather than the moral discernment between good and evil that you were discussing earlier. Those are two very different ideas, and they they don't they do not fit together in Jung's world at all. So, for example, if, if we follow the dark side of God theme, which many unions are very attached to, the logical consequence of that is that we should do whatever it is we want to do. You know, we should be like Alistair Crowley. We should, you know, I will is the only law, right? I, you know, because I want it, it should be. And any, any kind of, any kind of judgment about that is something to be abjured. There is no good and evil. There's just really power and the expression of it. And I think, I think like Deleuze, who was very influenced by Jung, he actually brought, he actually filled out that sentence and brought it to its conclusion where he says, actually, no, there's neither good nor evil. There's just power and its expression and its failed expressions, kind of a Nietzschean spinatistic amoralism. But this Nietzschean spinatistic amoralism is entirely at odds with the other element in Jung, which is this strong sense. That, the, that there is a kind of moral responsibility, an ethical responsibility of the individual to develop their consciousness and to discern. Yeah, like, f- For example, with regard to the archetypes, this domination by an archetype is also the source of all the worst things in the world. That was, that was Jung's analysis of the, of the National Socialist Movement. Right. We, we're not to surrender ourselves to the collective or to the archetypal or to the impersonal. On the contrary, we are to build a, a, a bridge to it, what, he, what what Jung calls the transcendent function. So to maintain this kind of ego pole, which is in constant life-giving dialogue with the, you know, the impersonal archetypal dimension, neither surrendering to it nor uh, repressing it. Right. And th- that for me is the moral, the ethical access of Jung's thought. And I think you're right. It's for me incompatible with this this Asiatic monism, which he tends to uh, fall into when he tries to be a metaphysician, which is always a bad idea for you.
2: Yes, yes. That's helpful. Yeah, I agree with everything you've just said there. But can I bring you back to his point about the Lord's Prayer? A God who leads us into temptation.
0: Yeah. Remind me uh, what he says on that.
2: Well, he's saying that We can't just trust conscience as the vox dei, the voice of God, because this is a God who can lead us into temptation. Let me just
1: come in with with, with actually quoting that, because I think it could be really helpful also for a listener. So this is the quote from the Jung paper, where he speaks about the uh, Lord's Prayer. Uh, But if the voice of conscience is the voice of God, this voice must possess him comparable higher authority than traditional morality anyone therefore who allows conscience this status should for better or worse put his trust in divine guidance and follow his conscience rather than give heed to conventional morality if the believer had absolute confidence in his definition of god as the summum it would be easy for him to obey the inner voice for he could be sure of never being led astray. But since in the Lord's prayer, we still beseech God not to lead us into temptation. This undermines the very trust the believer should have if in the darkness of a conflict of duty, he is to obey, he is to obey the voice of conscience without regard to the world and very possibly act against the precepts of the moral code by obey God rather than men. Yeah, lead us not into temptation.
0: This is a God—well, Jung is right that God, in the Lord's Prayer, is identified as one who could lead us into temptation, or at least surrender us, leave us, right? I think the point of the Lord's Prayer is that we are—the only reason we are not led into temptation is because God protects us from such temptation. And should God withdraw that protective power, uh, we will fall into temptation. I think that's the point. Of the of the prayer, not that God leads us into temptation, but God preserves us from temptation. And sh- should God for a moment withdraw His hand, uh, we will fall into temptation. That I think is being said with regard to you know a God who could let us fall into temptation. I think what Jung is, Jung is playing with here, which is, is his answer to to yeah. Job, in which he regards the God of the Bible as somehow morally inadequate and needing to be corrected. And so this stages of correction happen. So first you have Yahweh, who's obviously capable of wrathful acts and violent acts and so on, a God of wrath. And then you have the, the, the Christian correction of this, which is to, to, to in the mythic language, you know, to appease the wrathful God with the sacrifice of the good son. And then you have, but, the, but Jung is not happy to leave it there. He says, now there's a third correction required uh, because of the one-sidedness to the Christian correction, namely that it has excluded the dark rather than integrated it. And this third correction apparently is happening on the level of psychoanalysis. So I, when, I, when I hear Jung speaking about Christianity, it, he seems to be always speaking from the perspective of of something that needs to be corrected and transcended psychoanalytically. Now, on the the one hand, I think that's an interesting point because we can't just leave the tradition where it is. The tradition dies if it's not constantly being appropriated, uh, adapted, even expanded. And so I'm I'm all on board with the idea that the psychological age actually needs to uh, be an age of the church in a certain way. And that the revelation, the religious tradition of, of at least part of the world has to be uh, somehow critically appropriated and, and, and corrected in, in certain ways. Mm-hmm. Who, who wouldn't agree with that? But where I have a difficulty is with the kind of correction that Jung thinks is required, because there it becomes incoherent. There we suddenly say that, actually, we're going to go back now, and we're going to correct the Christian correction by integrating the dark side of God into the, into the, the Trinity. Us. Yeah. And and, and at that point, the whole thing falls to peace. It's because now we're we're even worse than Yahweh. We're in something that's pre-Yahwehic, you know, something that is really deeply undifferentiated. Believe
2: me, I I, I know. I mean, I was a creature of the 1960s, which started out with peace and love and sweetness and nonviolence, and wound up at the Ultimate Pop Festival with the Hell's Angels killing people while the Rolling Stones sang Sympathy for the Devil. And... That youth counterculture got entirely into this two faces of God, including yeah. worship of the Dark Lord. And there are, are, are elements of this in Jung which, frankly, really frightened me.
0: Yes, and, and, it's, and, it, and unfortunately, it's, it's my experience, it's what is most predominant in Jungian circles where Jung's psychology of religion is, is discussed. I rarely hear the criti- criticism. I hear rather the repetition of this thing. And, it, and it's, it's it, yeah, it's entirely inadequate. So what we're getting at here, so what, one of the ways I've dealt with this theoretically is to say, listen, good and evil are not opposites. And that's very New Testament. They're not opposites. Good, good, good is not in conflict with evil. That's the theology of George Lucas. That is not the theology of the New Testament. Goodness is transcendent of evil. Evil is only permitted a space of time for the sake of some inscrutable ends uh, that God has willed. And we're told, you know, that in Revelation at the end, Revelation twenty, that evil will be entirely cast out and rendered nothing.
2: You know, the we'll devil is it's always the devil is always already defeated.
0: Exactly. So they're not, they're, you know, or, or or the light shines in the darkness and the darkness does not comprehend it. So we're not talking about two countervailing powers here that have to be held in balance in the interest of some third. That is not the image of goodness. We're talking about something quite different, which is, you could say, more hierarchical, and that's a bad word today, but nevertheless, the good is infinitely, qualitatively transcendent of anything that we might call evil. And whatever is evil only is insofar as it's permitted a space of operation for whatever reason, and reasons that we can't comprehend. And that's what I hear Christ saying in the Lord's Prayer. When he says, lead us not into temptation, he's saying, temptation, the devil, the dark that we deal with, the sin that we are so vulnerable to, all of this really is something that God could wipe away in an instant, but he has not for reasons that we do not comprehend. And so we are therefore vulnerable and we need to depend entirely on the mercy of God to protect us from this. It's, it's not a question of a duality here at all. It's a question of
1: absolute dependence, to quote Schleiermacher. But, but Sean, I mean, on, on a theoretical level, this, this all makes sense to me. But as we also know, Jung was not a theologian. He was foremost a clinician. He was foremost, you know, developing his theory out of his own experience with himself and his patients. And good and evil, you say, is not in conflict. I agree theoretically. No, I didn't right. say
0: they're not in conflict. That's not what I said. I said that they're not counter
1: They're yeah, not right. in, the next opposing they have, forces. They are not opposing forces. But in man, they are. Yes. And that's what Job is speaking of, I see. He doesn't try to develop a theology here. He's speaking of in the human nature, they are absolutely in opposition and in conflict all the time. And in the story of Job, God sends the devil to tempt Job. I mean, God is the man behind the temptation in that story. And Luther (laughs) also says, uh, sometimes God sends the devil, but we have to see how we should work with that devilish element in us. Just as you said, Don, in our last conversation, we cannot sort of get away with the superego. We need to have it working for us. The devil needs to cut the, the grapes yeah to refer to Mr so I'll leave it to Sean
2: to address that part of it, God sending uh, the devil to tempt Job. but uh, let me just say that in terms of the battle between good impulses and evil impulses in human nature, here is where I think we need the Freudian concept of the it because because it's pretty clear to me that we can trust our conscience. We have to distinguish it from the superego. We have to distinguish the voice of conscience from all of these other voices. But the voice of conscience is the Vox Dei. It's guided by the principle of love. It can be trusted. It is quite distinct from other id contents that can be absolutely destructive and, and demonic.
0: And as you said earlier, that the discernment of spirits here is a work of consciousness.
2: Yes.
1: Yes. Is, that's, that's crucial. And I think you would agree with this, but I think the dualism of Jung is that it speaks about the duality in the human heart and the struggle, you know, on, on a human level, not, he doesn't form a theology out of this. If it is one, it, it's full well, of this.
0: This is where, I mean, ya- 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 Jacob, I'm completely sensitive to the idea that Jung wants to speak as a clinician. And if he only spoke as a clinician, I'd be all on board. He's constantly Man, transgressing this limitation. Yeah. And he, he loves to play amateur theologian. He even loves to play amateur metaphysician with, you know, the psychoid and say, you know, the objective psyche and this kind of stuff. So I, I've just never, I've never taken it seriously that Jungian psychology has obeyed these strict boundaries between clinical work and more theoretical speculative work, whether it's in theology or philosophy. I, I just don't believe it. I don't believe it in Freud and I don't believe it in Jung, which is why I think Don's work is so important. He kind of. He's kind of saying, listen, we're already transgressing these boundaries. We're already in the domain of the ethical. We, have, we can't pretend that we aren't.
1: I am the Jungian the in the room, so I, I agree with you, Sean, that Jung is going between positions. I, I, but my point is that, you so, know, yeah. I think he speaks about the human heart and the struggle that people have. And that's a very dualistic struggle at times. I agree. But if, but, if, but,
0: if, but if Jung is happy transgressing the boundaries, why doesn't he invite the others in? Now, he does on occasion. You know, Victor White was invited in. But generally speaking, there's a lot of hesitation and even kind of naive critique of the theological or philosophical voice in Union circles, you know? They're speaking, even somebody who is as speculatively adept as Gigerich has this kind of epoque, you know? Do, I remember once asking Gigerich, you know, shouldn't we talk about metaphysics? And you know what he said to me? He said, that's a temptation. <laughs> he said, we cannot go there. So absolute psychology leaves, so fills the space that there is no room for any other voice. There is no plurality there. There's no voice, there's no room for the the theological voice or the philosophical voice coming from whatever tradition. And and consequently what happens is this kind of amateur theology tends to kind of colonize uh, the space. And we have all these
1: confusions perpetuated. I can agree with that there's a lot of confusion within the, the union field and discourse, and I wouldn't protect the, the unions, but I, I would like also to say that it's interesting, though, no, that we're discussing this paper that Jung wrote, one of his last papers in 1958, uh, Psychological View of Conscience, and we all getting some insights from it. It's a, it's a magnificent paper. He says that the Freudian tradition never
2: goes out there to this distinction that, that he sees very clearly in certain aspects. I, I have a problem with, with your mentioning the concept of the heart earlier, like the, the division, the, the 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 conflict within the heart of man kind of thing. I have trouble with that because I think the heart is closely allied with the conscience. And, and I, I think that the demonic does not come from the heart.
1: It comes from other aspects of our nature. But it's converted the heart. Reliable. <laughs> well, I think it comes into the heart and that's, you know. That's the part of the work, you know? I mean, when you're in sin, you I mean it, it goes to the heart, I mean, of well, that's, that's actually Christ, Jesus says that himself right? So the, the heart is a metaphor. This is
0: the, I, mean, I love the metaphor, but as a metaphor, it's got a, a lack of precision, right? So we're speaking about the, when we say the heart, we mean what? The core, the innermost, right? The ground, if you like. Well, I associate it with love. The heart sure.
2: is the seat of love and therefore it is not the seat of evil.
0: But wouldn't you say, Don, that evil is only one with a heart is capable of evil? Yes. So in a certain way, you could say that out of the heart spring all evil thoughts, which is a paraphrase of what Jesus himself says. Not that the heart is evil, but only one with a heart can so misuse themselves as to be productive of evil. Oh, that,
2: that I would agree with, but that's not, that's not saying that the evil comes from the heart. That's only saying that only someone with a heart could be drawn into evil.
0: Yeah, that's, so that's why I find the heart, you know, a rather imprecise way to speak. I would prefer to speak about the ground or, you know, the, 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 the core of freedom out of which personality grows. And so there's a, there's a certain kind of perversion that only human persons are capable of. Yes. And this is why I think it's a mistake to, to, to speak about goodness and evil in the non-human world. In a certain way, we, we admire plants and animals and the universe precisely because it is so confirmed in its being, but there's a kind of vacillation. At the core of the human being, we don't have to say it's the heart if you don't like. But at the ground of the human being, there's this, there's this vacillation. And the Schelling says, you know, there, if out of the ground emerges a decision, mm-hmm. a decision for good or for evil. What Schelling means by that is not that we choose. He says decision, decision and We we actually divide at this point. It's it's not that we choose pre-existing op, pre-existing possibilities like, you know, Jacob. Uh, Chooses his good good Jacob over evil Jacob, rather that in the decision this personal ground produces something that has never been before, and it's it's either a form of evil that was never before, or it's a form of goodness that was never before. But in any case, it's 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 produced out of this ground of freedom.
2: Yes, yes, out of the ground of freedom for sure. This is why I love my dog. My dog is incapable of evil.
0: Exactly, but I hate to say it, Don. It also means that the dog's incapable of good. Really. Oh, absolutely, that's true too. That's so we miss, we misuse the term when we go "good dog." <laughs> <laughs> that's true.
1: Sean, I, I just want to hear if you have any comments about uh, the temptation, you know, the set. Yeah, God, God sending the devil. Well, I mean, that's exactly true that God sends the devil.
0: That's exactly true. We certainly know that. That's biblical. That's New Testament. But in the Lord's Prayer, you had, you had an issue with that. Or no, I didn't. I was actually speaking precisely. If the devil's on the scene, it's only because God has allowed the devil to be on the scene. So that's the terrible insecurity, the situation of insecurity in which we stand, right? We, we we do not command this terrain. We're not the, you know, we're not the master of this house. If you want to speak in the Freudian phrase, so that means there's a kind of dependency on the mercy of God to protect us from these things. And the truth is that we shall be protected. You know, the whole story of Christ is his. Here's the best man who ever lived, if you want, or the Logos incarnate, more accurately, and he is constantly, he is constantly subject to the power of the devil. If you take his first appearance to be at the the baptism of the Jordan, you know, and as he appears in Mark without the infancy narratives, which are very likely, well, they are constructed, they're constructed after the fact. I think that Jesus enters history as a 30 year old man being baptized by John the Baptist at the Jordan. What happens immediately afterwards? You know, at this moment of initiation where he is actually called the son of God. He is led into the, devil, into the desert where the devil has his way with him, or at least tries to have his way with him. And he, he, he withstands that. And then the devil departs until the appointed hour, which is his moment of greatest trial, which is the passion. The point being that this, the, the best man is not the man who never, who is never subject or never tormented by evil, but the one who is constantly constantly uh, subject to the to the power of evil and nevertheless holds fast or is held fast
1: the question that i'm sitting with is this question of of, of conscience in the analytical space you don't with your theoretical work have done a, a great service in saga and saga as well and others it, in, in feeling and working on these matters and showing the importance of differentiating, for example, superego, from conscience. Then we have this comment from you, Sean, about that unions are sort of as a whole a little bit immoral or there's no ethical compass. I, I wanted to hear about you, John, Person, what, what you think about this. Is psychoanalytic practice today a practice without conscience? Or is it actually there, but we just don't talk about it in these terms, you know? We do have people to maybe love that transcend some part of their narcissism and see the other, and they might not call themselves Christians, but, you know, as you said before, you, you say, you, you speak about psychoanalysis as a conversational experience. Well, I, I think uh, conscience to some extent is built
2: into standard psychoanalytic practice. But Freud lied about it and, and Freudians have been lying about it ever since. I mean, they hide it behind this medical facade. They talk about mental health. Rather than trying to convert people from badness to goodness, they won't admit what they're doing, but nevertheless, the the value system is there. They could do so much better if they raised it to consciousness. If they if they got honest about what it is that they are about, they could do it much, much better. But they're imbevorous about the ethical nature of their practice, there's also I mean, they're not going to get paid in Ontario by OHIP for trying to turn people from badness to goodness or even from narcissism to object love, which is the way Freud put it in 1914 when he momentarily slipped up and forgot his disguise. He stopped talking that way and shifted to the language of mental health. So it's there in the tradition, but but the tradition has really suffered from not being fully conscious, not really being honest about itself there have been major failures of conscience unconscientious elements within the psychoanalytic tradition which I think might have been avoided if if, if we had been able to be honest about the ethic that undergirds the whole the whole enterprise just on the question of, of working in the, in, the, in the clinical room much of my work follows the, the line of the, the, the example that Jung gave us I, my patients are doing all kinds of immoral and unethical things and they're lying to themselves but they produce dreams in which their hands are dirty and or they're they're doing things like stealing and cheating and i'm not going to be super egoish and reproach them for this but i am going to be alert to what do they do with the dirty money mostly they lose it or they get it stolen from them, or right. they get hit by a car, or they develop migraine headaches. And I'm always pointing out, look what happens whenever you cheat on your wife, you get the headaches or you get that rash all over your body, whatever. So I'm, I'm confronting them with the consequences of their actions, thus trying to lead them to, to face the fact that they have a conscience and they have a superego. They're, they're, they're busy blocking both superego and conscience. That's how
0: I, how I work. Well, there's so much on the table here. I don't know where to begin. So I, I'm going to start from one the first thing I remember and then bring it right back to the very interesting thing that Don just said. So first thing that you said, Jacob, is that unions are immoral, that I actually, I don't, I can't think of a single union I met that I would call immoral. On the contrary, I I I think that they just don't understand the the ethical thrust of their practice and they're misnaming it, and that Jung has not helped them with his monistic idea of a good evil God. That, that would that was my claim, not that they're immoral, but that their their theory is inadequate to the ethical thrust of what they're doing, which is I think more or less what Don is saying about the Freudian tradition. Yeah. But then with regard to the church, you know what, what do we, what does a church, what's, what does church mean? There's two words in the, in the, in the tradition, Ecclesia and kirke. Ecclesia is the one I like the best because it really just means a gathering of concerned citizens. So it's a gathering of people. And in the New Testament context, it means those people who have gathered around the Christ. And if we wanted to secularize this, which I think we should, because as I've said many times before, Christianity is self-secularizing. It's the gathering of those called to love. It's the community of those called to love. That's the church. So what if it happens in your consulting room or in, in the cathedral down the road from me, it's of no moment, really. Uh, wherever it's happening, the church is active. And, and I'm convinced that the church is alive and well once we regard it in this much bigger sense of the word, this ontological sense, and stop identifying it with certain transitory institutions which are passing away which weren't always part of it and which will not always be part of it. But uh, what, I, what I wanted to come back to, though, is this embarrassment about the ethical. I thought that was so interesting, Don. So, the, and, and you use the word lie multiple times. They're lying about what they're doing. They're, they're promoting health. And I immediately thought of, you know, the, the etymological relationship between the word health and whole and holy. You know, and there's a kind of, there's a kind of, a reductionistic refusal of that, of, of that etymological, and I think ontological relationship between right. health, holiness, wholeness. Mm-hmm. And it, and it occurred to me as I heard you speak, you know, that I, I, can well imagine many situations in which the right thing to do is to lie, but I cannot, I can't imagine a single situation in which the right thing to do is to lie to yourself, mm-hmm. It seems to be there we have the, the, this, the, the this thing that cannot be forgiven, not because there's a judgmental God who's punishing us for us, but because we put ourselves into a place in which we cannot possibly.
2: Well, and here's how it like the tradition of opposing self-deception while ongoingly deceiving itself.
0: <laughs> yeah. And what I wanted to ask you is why you, th- what do you think that, what do you think the root of that embarrassment is? It's obviously an accidental thing. It's kind of a structural feature of the Freudian tradition, I think.
2: Well, I mean, I I think it has to do with the enlightenment, uh, enlightenment, rationalism and materialism and so many, Freud himself and so many people are steeped in their respect for and their identification with enlightenment, rationalism and science and they can't bear to see themselves as people who are committed to love and to kindness over cruelty. And they see this as sort of sentimental and non-rational and non-scientific, and they find it all very embarrassing.
0: Yeah, I, I would have thought my own take on Freud and to some, to a lesser degree on Jung, is that there is this attachment to what in philosophy we call the positivist tradition?
2: Yeah, positivism.
0: Yeah, what's real is a thing that can be measured in space and time that has that's localizable. There's an interesting passage in the interpretation of dreams where Jung Freud says, you know, the psyche has its own laws and it should be understood on its own terms and not explained in terms of something else. Yeah. But then he adds, and with time we'll find out that those are the same laws that pertain. To physical things,
2: right? Ultimately, mind will be reduced to brain, and That's so right. many of my colleagues have lost touch with psychoanalysis altogether. They're into what they're calling neuropsychoanalysis, and it's sure. all about the brain. and It's a total waste of time. Not for brain scientists, but for psychoanalysts, it's a waste of time.
0: Oh, it's it's we're in a far more deeply positivistic age than Freud was in 1900 when he wrote the Interpretation of Dreams. Right. And, and neuroscience has, is, has just, uh, it's just dominating our, our understanding of ourselves. What gets me is, is how there's a kind of paradox there that pe- people seem to be, here's the difference. Back in the end of the 19th century, when positivism, you know, 1.0 was destroying our cultural in, in, institutions and our, and our ethics, people were horrified. You know, you think of the characters in Dostoevsky's novels, who carry the positivism all the way through and go and butcher their landlady or something. It was like, this is horror that actually it's all just meaningless matter in motion. But now, um, when we have this seemingly more sophisticated scientific demonstration that it's all just meaningless matter in motion, we're all relieved. We're all delighted. It's like. You know, we found the God molecule, you know, we found a little part of your brain that if I tickle it with electricity will cause you to feel oceanic bliss, you know, and, and, and people are relieved by this. They're happy about it. I don't understand it.
2: Well, I, I, I guess one, it's, it, it saves us from, it saves us from freedom. It saves us from guilt. It
0: saves us from humanity. I think we're in a deep, deep, dark positivist age. And I think this is why psychoanalysis, interestingly, has become so out of mode. You know, when I talk to philosophers of mind, they're, they they can not believe that I have anything to do with something as wrong as psychoanalysis.
2: Uh-huh. Well because you're also involved with something as wrong as Christianity. Yeah, it's odd that, that they're wrong. I mean, people don't understand it. With psychoanalysis, it brought me back to Christianity. So, you know, psychoanalysis is profoundly involved with the soul. Maybe I should forgive my medical colleagues and let them, uh, leave them alone and let them continue to hide behind their medical disguise because they're doing soul work maybe it's, <laughs> maybe they need a shield in this age of positivism.
0: Yeah. Or just, yeah, let them have their provisional names. Yes. Yeah. I do think that something is coming and it's going to be neither the Christianity that we are familiar with, nor the psychoanalysis that we have more or less worked through to the end. There, there, there is not, neither of these things are finished. So in that regard, you know, I do, I very much like. Jung, when he plays his prophetic note and he looks towards this future integration or this new stage of whatever it is that's, that's working, that's working its way through time in at least the European tradition, I, I,
1: I think that's the proper attitude. When these they are not dead, but they're actually changing into something new. I think there's something prophetic in Jung, but I also think there's something very reformative. I mean. The way I understand Jung is he could have been the greatest of reformer of Christianity, if he would have taken a stand, if he wouldn't have hidden behind this person as a psychiatrist. So, so there is also something in, in Jung. I mean, he's never, he's, he's envisioning the future. He's prophetic, but it's always rooted in tradition. What would, what would it mean, Jakob, for him to take a stand? A stand would, I guess, mean, first of all, that he had, would have to, to, to kiss, to, to kneel and kiss the floor. And he would. He never. He, he never did that. He, he was until the end, as I understand it, ambivalent and he, in some sort of opposition. So so therefore that wasn't his life. But you know his theories are alive, and we can work with them, and we can you know do what we're doing here on our small term. And what you've done, which holds a great future, and that will live on, and done you know with your work on just bringing consciousness and sorry, <laughs> bringing conscience back into psychoanalysis and into Jungian psychoanalysis. I wonder about religion, you
0: know, you say he should have kissed the floor. Are you saying, you know, we, we want a religious psychoanalysis? I
1: imagine Don isn't quite ready to go there. No, no. no. I think we should see that psychoanalysis is, you know, as young Don said in his latest paper, it's, it's spirituality. It's bringing us back to seeing life as as it is, you know, it, it takes away the blindfolds. I'm not saying that we should develop a, a Christian psychoanalysis, but Don right, you know, it, it's helps us to see the truth.
2: Yeah, it's a spiritual practice, I believe, and always has been, but in disguise.
0: What does it mean exactly to say that it's a spiritual practice? I mean, what? Well,
2: I think first of all, I think it's I think psychoanalytic practice is a form of meditation. Everybody is so preoccupied with mindfulness meditation. I think that psychoanalysis is a type of that that goes on towards what I call heartfulness meditation. But the patient is free associating and the analyst is enjoined to have freely hovering attention. So both the patient and I are sitting there in a, in a meditative state and we're watching what comes up in the dialogue and what comes up in the dream. So the whole thing seems to me to be a, a, a daily meditative practice for patients who are on the couch four or five days a week. It's a deep meditation, among other things. And and to the extent that it clarifies conscience and distinguishes it from superego, and helps the patient sort out these voices in his head and helps him. Oh, that last question you mentioned in your list, Jakob. Murray Stein is talking about how we not only have responsibility to others, but we have responsibilities to the self. I think of Winnicott's true self. I think true self is often ignored and abandoned. And I think a a conscientious person owes others, but also owes his true self. And uh, terrible conflicts obviously emerge. Sometimes to do justice to my true self, I may have to break a covenant with another so this is just a lifelong ethical struggle but i i think conscience is linked to the true self and i think creativity is linked to the true self so i think in 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 analysis we're trying to help people make contact with their true selves by helping them make contact with their emotions and their dreams and we're trying to bring them close with I think that psychoanalysis involves self-realization, self-actualization, and the end result is a more conscientious person. Uh, So I think this is a spiritual practice.